0: Oh ha! you are listening to Inside the Desert Oasis Room, episode number 221. This episode is sponsored by the Tiki Bar T-Shirt Club, where their monthly t-shirt designs pay tribute to a Polynesian bar or restaurant from days long past. Each design is available for a limited time and will never be produced again. For the collectors out there, be sure to check out their subscription program, where they offer a discounted 3-, 6-, or 12-month plan, or you can always buy shirts one at a time. For more information and to check out this month's shirt, visit tikibartshirtclub.com. This podcast is sponsored by Frogtown Brewery an independent craft brewery and tap room located in Northeast Los Angeles. Stop in and enjoy one of their excellent beers from their ever-changing, diverse menu. Tell them that Inside the Desert Oasis Room sent you and get your first pint on us. Limitations apply. For more information, go to frogtownbrewery.com and follow them on social media at Frogtown Brewery. Today, we welcome our friend David Badgero. a return visit inside the Desert Oasis Room, and with a cameo by his partner, Jess. David is the host and producer of the fun and always entertaining Cocktail Fridays channel on YouTube. So on this episode, we naturally chat about all things rum and cocktails. As always, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did bringing it to you. If you'd like to follow our adventures, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash polynesian pop where we chronicle events, bars, travel spots, cocktail tutorials, and more. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash polynesian pop where membership grants you early access to podcasts and videos, front of the line privileges to new merch releases, as well as exclusive content, meetups, and screen credits. All righty, let's get into this. Pour yourself a cocktail and join us inside the Desert Oasis Room. And give it up for my friends David and Jessica Badgerow. Happening. Hello. Thanks for being back on the podcast. Thank you. I love it. So for our listeners out there, our friend Dave Badgerow is back on the podcast with his lovely bride. Hello. The the lovely Miss Jess. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. The last time I had you on the podcast, Dave, was like two years ago. That's right. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Like it's how time flies. Time has flown quite so a lot. We must have recorded that during pandemic or something it, it right it was
1: it was it was it was uh we were still pretty early into the pandemic at that point how
0: do i not remember that particular <laughs> detail that's crazy we don't remember much from 2020 <laughs> <laughs> right well had you already started your cocktail fridays
1: by then i think i was j- just a couple of episodes in at that point yeah was that a pandemic project you know what it was uh because uh it was started as a result of a joke at work. I was working at, oh, yeah, I was at DreamWorks Animation at the time, and I used to have a thing there at work when we were all in the studio that we sort of dubbed Cocktail Fridays, and it was just every two or three weeks or so I would make uh, tiki cocktails at the studio. We would have like one featured, you know, recipe, and then the joke became be- became that we all had to go home and we would be working from home. And my boss at the time said, well, now that you're working from home, you're gonna to need to make instructional videos on yeah. how to make these things, <laughs> which he meant as a joke. And I was like, oh, I'm definitely gonna make one. Yeah. And so we actually made two, well, we made one, sent it out, and he got so excited by it, And he's like, you have to do another one. So, we made two. And then after Jess and I made two, we were just like, you know, if we're going to make any more of these, let's turn it into its own YouTube channel. I
0: love that. It's crazy because the pandemic, if it didn't happen, you wouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Right. And and that's truly, um, it seems like there's a lot of cocktail channels that were born out of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, you know, my vlog was born out of the pandemic oh i was just doing the podcast and then i started doing the vlog because it was you know one way to is to stay creative and another thing was that you know i had realized that it was a way for me to document what was happening in my life Mm -hmm. because you know when when i was younger and i was too self-centered to care i never asked my father or my grandfather about our family history. And I didn't know anything about anybody in my lineage past my grandfather. And so I didn't know his name, I didn't have any photos, nothing. And I thought, you know, if I do this thing where I can record what I'm doing, the people that I hang out with, the places that I go, all that kind of stuff, I thought, like, what a what a gift to leave to my ancestors right because it's the gift that i would cherish a million percent right like having this window into my great-grandfather's life you know if i could leave that to one of my grandkids who can show it to their grandkids and their grandkids and their grandkids and so on and so on and so on it's kind of like a time machine Absolutely. You know, so I could, can you imagine, you know, I mean, we, we see these videos, right. That we get all excited about on YouTube and it's just a guy driving down Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> and thank God for this guy who had the wherewithal yeah. to like hold a video camera and just drive down Sunset Boulevard and how much we love to watch just driving down Sunset Boulevard. There's no one in the video yeah. except for a bunch of old cars and old buildings, but we love it. Yeah. Right. And there's a guy I follow on Instagram, his name is Tony Barnhill, and he takes these old photos from Hawaii. They're old photos from like the late 1800s, black and white photos, of like what Waikiki looked like before there were hotels. Yeah. And he colorizes them. And they're fantastic. Yeah. So my thought is, wow, would it be great to have something like that for my family? I would love that. So maybe I could do that for those that come after me. Right? Absolutely. And, and that's that's how the whole YouTube thing started. And, and also, like, we couldn't do anything. So <laughs> I was thinking of ways to just stay creative, right? And, yep. and that happened, Yeah, you know?
1: Yep. And then you have people like me that watch the channel now, uh, like currently, uh, to gain basically gain access to bars that I want to go to but haven't been able to go to yet. Like, you went to Mothership. Um, oh, yeah, recently, great yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's, that's one that both Justin and I want to go to, and I'm like, I have no idea what that looks like, but
0: I sort of get to live vicariously through. Right, yeah. right. So I have a question for you after starting Cocktail Friday. So you're a drooling bastard, right? I am. And when you went on that journey, mm-hmm. and I use that word purposely, <laughs> because people say that they've learned through that journey what they like and don't like. Yep. And they discovered this new hobby of spirits and cocktails and things like that. Did Cocktail Fridays do the same for you? I think so,
1: I think like, I think one of the things that we're learning it, that channel when we started it, it was sort of a, we were trying to look into recipes that were we were already very familiar with. And so we started like Navy Grog, Mai Tai, you know, um, the usual suspects. And I think now as we've gone through, we intentionally have been trying to seek out uh, cocktail recipes from unusual places or from specific bars, and uh, and you know there's now we have all these modern cocktail books, and so it's fun to dig into those and uh, sort of try to widen our you know like widen the vista of like outside of what we're more familiar with. It's you know what it's in a small way almost like having another Julian Bastard challenge. I was
0: going to say it's actually yes. But it's also kind of like an expanded Drilling Bastard Challenge because you're doing cocktails that weren't part of that list. Yeah, right. it's like ultra-modern. So now you're saying like, okay, well, I've tried all those. Let me try all these. Mm -hmm. What are you learning from this process that's different from what you learned as a Drilling Bastard? I think the
1: the number one thing for me, at least, is... um, when I was doing the the Julian Bastard, it was it was more about the end result of the cocktail, and so like, because some sometimes I would look up what was in it before I tasted it. Like I would try to do my homework before I'd be like, I'm doing these four drinks tonight, right. or four right. drinks. That was a, that'd be a lot, but I'm, do, I'm doing these couple of drinks tonight. Uh, Which like, you had, like, I'm
0: sure you were tempted to oh. do it some
1: nights where you wanted to just check them off. Yep. Right? There was there was one night I remember I did four, and I'm like, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so so I would, basically what I would do is I would just make a mental note of like, well, this tastes like that. But um, what's different between doing that and Cocktail Fridays is, because we are very much making the recipe and looking into, especially if there's exotic ingredients or more difficult to find ingredients, we get to learn a lot about how does every individual ingredient affect the creation, oh, yeah. the, the taste of the cocktail?
0: Yeah, yeah, completely, because we just saw an example of that with a cocktail that we sampled before we started this recording, mm-hmm. right? So before I go, go any further, for our listeners that are not familiar with what the Drooling Bastard is and what we're talking about, I apologize. <laughs> I assume that people sometimes know what we're talking about and so I apologize to those that don't know. What the Drooling Bastard is, there's this water fountain in the Tonga Hut. And the Tonga Hut is a tiki bar in North Hollywood this water fountain they've nicknamed the drooling bastard. And they started this program where if you drank every cocktail that's in Beach Bumberry's first cocktail book, Beach Bumberry's groglog, mm-hmm. you get your name on a plaque which they hang over the drooling bastard statue and you become deemed a drooling bastard. And Bastards, for short. People, yeah. people say, are you, a bastard? "Are you a bastard?" In the in the tiki and cocktail or tiki cocktail community, it's pretty much known what is meant by that. Like, have you completed the list? There are seventy eight drinks on this list, and not all of them are great, but they come from the old tiki bars, yep. the tiki bars that existed in the forties, fifties, and sixties. That I don't think any of them really exist anymore, right? Yeah. Are there cocktails in there from bars that still exist? There is, yeah, but um, but I, it's safe to say the majority of those are now extinct. The bars, yeah. the bars are extinct. So, our friend David here is a drilling bastard. Are you a drilling bastard, Jess? I am not. So, Jess is not a drilling. Do you do you plan to go down that? Potentially
2: path? in the future, but not any, not in the near future. Okay. Yep.
0: Okay, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. So I'm not a drilling bastard. So are you not? I'm not. I know people are surprised when I say that, but. The reason being, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, it's mainly because I'm a creature of habit. So I'm someone that when I find something that I really like, I order it again and again and again. If I go to a restaurant I really like, I go to it again and again and again. If I go on vacation and I find an island that I really like, I go back multiple times. Mm -hmm. Um, And the drooling bastard thing is, since you're checking off drinks from a list, I would feel compelled to never order the same thing again, which is kind of strange because really it's it's a way to learn about what you like and what you don't like. So if you find what you like, you want to order it again, right? But if you're trying to complete a list, you don't want to order it again. So it's kind of a conundrum for me. And then the other reason why I don't do it is um, so how many 78 drinks? Let's average like 12 bucks a drink. You're you're looking at like $1,000 for the cocktails. And from what I understand, like two-thirds of them aren't really that great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. so I just can't throw away like two-thirds of (laughs) $1,000, you know? So again, I I just prefer to order what I like. Sure, That's why I've never done it.
2: I think to your point in a little bit, the thing that appeals to me about the um, grog log is that you're drinking a drink um, that someone drank 50 years ago or, you know. Right. They would come from these old tiki bars that don't exist. And much like seeing the photographs of Waikiki before it was developed, I stood in this one place that nothing used to be here. Right. And I think that's very interesting. But also to our channel's point, mm. I love being able to choose what I make instead of being told what yeah. I have to drink. Yeah. yeah. But it is... Also, a almost a form of nostalgia where I'm like, I am drinking a drink that was made in 1958 or 1965, right? Right, someone drank
0: this, right? Um. So, that actually raises a really good point. So, I think about like the food that, say, my grandmother made, right? And when my grandmother passed those dishes died with her because those recipes were never written down right and maybe even the recipes if i followed it today things would be different because the ingredients change right Mm -hmm. so for example these drinks and that's a great example of drinking something in in history right this was a drink that someone drank in 1958 or whatever right but is it really the same drink today does it taste the same does it taste the same right because today the limes are different the the spirits are different the syrups are different did you know that the banana that today's banana that we eat at every grocery store did you know that it's a clone you did So Jess is nodding her head. I'm a weird foodie. (laughs) Okay, so you know that. So you know that the the original banana that went to the consumer is not the banana that we consume today. Mm. So if you had a cocktail made with those bananas, it wouldn't taste the same as the cocktails we have today, Mm -hmm. right? And you think about the spirits, right? So we kind of touched on this before we were recording, Mm. that the spirits today are so different, right? right? Absolutely. Think about the rums, right? The like, rums especially, yeah. There's no way we could duplicate Trader Vic's original Mai Tai. No. Because as we said, <clears throat> the, the fruits are different yep. today. The spirits, or I'm sorry, the syrups are different today. Yeah. And you can no longer get the rum that that was made with. So we can try to make an educated guess. But if you put them side by side, I bet they taste very different from each other. Absolutely, Yeah.
1: It's funny because we have um, this is sort of a, a, a small derivation here, but like when it comes to the Mai Tai, especially like people are so kind of micro obsessed with trying to duplicate what right. the Vicks Mai Tai tastes like, and now you've got companies like Denizen that have like Denizen's uh, Merchant what is it Merchant Eight Reserve A E Reserve. Right. That's the whole point of that. It was like sort of co developed with um, Martin Kate. Okay. Uh, Martin Kate and Denison worked together using the old uh, dagger rum, the Ray and Nephew, like fifteen year old right, or something. Right. They tried to duplicate it. And uh, and the the closest and he oh yeah. And Martin Kate actually owns an old, old,
0: old bottle that he got in an auction. Well he owns he owns the Ray and, and nephew seventeen, right? That the yeah, tie was that's derived it. of. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, that's the one. Yeah.
1: And so like they used that as a as basically a tester. And then they he developed it with merchant with Denizen, and they made that new agent to try to duplicate the flavor. Yeah,
2: to and get so it as close as they can. Yeah,
1: as close as they possibly could. So so now so you know in theory when you when you try Denizen Eight,
2: yeah.
1: in a Mai Tai, it's supposed to taste like that it's original. supposed to.
0: So, wow, but that's just one tiny so, example, right? Here's the thing about here's the thing about all that old rum, right? So. We get these really great rums. They get gifted to us, and then they stop being produced. We have mm-hmm. the the yellow label lemon heart. Yeah, we were talking earlier about the lost spirits stuff. Yep. and other other spirits. right? it's not just rum; it's also whiskeys. And really, this this stuff is meant to be enjoyed, right? We're supposed to consume it. Like if it's sitting in a bottle on the shelf, it doesn't do any good. Like it's, you know, it's not like. You have a classic car where you can pull it out of the garage, enjoy it, bring it back in, and then use it again whenever you want. Once you consume it, it's gone. Yeah. But what good is it sitting on your shelf in a bottle, right? So it's just kind of this weird thing that how do we enjoy it, you know, but still – have it, yeah. Right, it's like drinking dinosaur blood, yeah. Know? It's like once it's gone, it's gone, right? So then you have Martin breaking open his bottle, yeah, specifically so they can duplicate that flavor, but he has to consume it, he has to open the bottle, yeah, and they have to, you yep. know, they actually have to consume whatever they have to consume to duplicate it. How many tastes did they go through? Yeah. How many iterations? did they go through that and they always have to go back to that bottle and taste it again right yeah that's that's a, that's a sacrifice to the rum gods <laughs> right. is what that is <laughs> what if
2: the first version just sucked the and, first, and yeah. the first like version of him trying to recreate it and yeah. him just thinking We're never uh, gonna what, get what get am there. i doing i'm yeah. drinking this <laughs> why did yeah. i crack this what open for this
0: yeah. <laughs> well he's really taking one for the team by doing that mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah seriously but you know you just the thought of that that rum coming back. I wonder what the thought process would be with Vic, Trader mm-hmm. Vic, when he was developing his Mai Tai. You know, at the time, that was what was probably one of the best rums out there. Mm-hmm. And when he developed the Mai Tai, you know, part of the him developing that was the goal of showcasing that rum. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. But we live in a world now where, geez, like, can you imagine what kind of playground those guys would have had if they had the same kind of rum selection that we have today? Yeah. Right? Yeah, Don and Vic and all those guys, right? And all the old bartenders. Can you imagine how different those bar menus would look like? And how different the cocktails would be if they had the selection that we had today?
1: Absolutely. And, like, all the different, like, just super high quality rums from different origins now you know mm-hmm. you can just in the massive wide range of haitian rum barbados rum Marnique rum like you know super high quality different versions of jamaican rum all that kind of stuff before you even get into the
0: syrups you know so yeah and maybe maybe like the the their passions would be different right the mm-hmm. the passion of the bar person back then would be much different knowing that they have better things to work with so for example we just mentioned how two-thirds of the drinks in oh, yeah, the, grog the grog log grog. aren't really that great yeah but they were just working with what they had mm-hmm. how much better would those drinks in the groglog be if they had their hands on what we have available today
1: yeah something that's fascinating to me about the the grog log and um and I apologize if this is a derivation here, but uh, it's it's funny to me that rum like or cocktails like art are sort of a product of their time, and um, this is actually something that we've discovered from doing Cocktail Fridays is uh, when we make certain cocktails that are specifically from a certain era in history or like are a evolution of an already existing cocktail. It, you can sort of trace the influence. And um, we once did an episode that was about um, the Beachcomber drink. So, like Beachcomber's Gold versus Beachcomber's Punch and stuff like that. And that was a bizarre one where uh, it's like, beach, I thought of it because Beachcomber's Gold is widely considered the worst drink on the grog Lock. They right. They actually right. warn you when you start. Right. They're like, don't worry, that one's like, look out for that one. Don't right. plan to have a good time. Uh, it was served exclusively at Don the Beachcomber Chicago. And I believe it was from the 70s. And that was one of those cocktail eras that immediately followed, that were coming off of like tiki first wave, so to speak, um, like tiki cocktails. And we're starting to go into sort of much drier drinks. Like, and you got yeah. like Tom Collins and dry martinis starting to get more popular. And uh, so the the big difference in that cocktail, a tiki cocktail of all things, is dry vermouth. Like dry vermouth, yeah, like, yeah. that stuff is so bitter. You would never find that in a tiki cocktail, but I look at that as a natural
0: like, product of its time. You know? Sure, yeah, you're right, because that was a 70s, a 70s thing. And in Chicago,
2: mm-hmm. what could you have access to that far north during the 70s, during not a, a resurgence, but like, mm-hmm a pulling back of tiki culture and what's available.
1: Yeah,
0: and like what fresh juices would they have at the time and whatnot. It's super cold climate. (laughs) But going back to that Beachcomber's Gold and the grog log, I've Mm. been told that there was, there's a misprint or something with that recipe.
1: Well, you know, it is possible because there's actually two Beachcomber's Golds.
0: Yeah, there's there's more than one recipe.
1: Actually, I heard there were three recipes. Mm. That, it was actually the reason we made that episode is because we we did an episode that was about like let's have what's considered one of the worst Tiki drinks ever right and then our we followed it up with an episode we're like here's the same the drink is called the exact same thing yeah and yet the recipe is wildly different so
0: yeah. we made a beer with Frogtown brewery mm-hmm. and it was a collaboration between desert Oasis room the dawn of Tiki and Frogtown brewery and it's a Beachcomber's Gold Tribute. Mm. But it was not based on the grog log recipe. It was based on the other recipe. Yeah. Which was actually pretty decent. Yes. You know, so when people say, oh, that's a horrible drink, I always ask, like, well, is it the grog log recipe? Because there is a different one. As a matter of fact, mm. when Don the Beachcomber in Huntington Beach existed... Mm. That was one of my favorite, it was probably my favorite drink on their menu. Wow. And they oh, did it yeah. with the ice the ice cone and everything, the yeah. shell. And it was the only drink that one person would make secretly in the kitchen. Huh. A specific person would would be the only person who made that drink, and he would make it in the kitchen. He wouldn't make it in the bar. Nope. So he'd make it in the kitchen, and then he'd come out and he'd present it. And it came with the ice shell in the coupe glass. Wow. And it was my favorite cocktail on the menu there
1: here here it is i actually was looking it up just now they, okay just like you said there's three versions of the exact same Three jerk. versions yeah the first the one that's on the grog log is from 1970 and that's the terrible one yeah light rum dry and red vermouth Pernod bitters yes oh
0: so it's just a bitter bomb
1: yeah and then the original is all the way back into 1937 and That one looks a lot more like what you would expect back then with gold Puerto Rican, gold Jamaican, dark Jamaican, lime, sugar syrup, yeah. and then there's the and That's like the yeah. only connection, yeah. basically. And then uh, that's the recipe almond.
0: we used for a couple of reasons. Number one, that was Marlene Dietrich's favorite cocktail at Don the Beach Comer. and he would make that for her specifically because of that. And she was a regular at Don the Beach comer. and we were doing this collab not just with Frogtown but with the Don of Tiki who's doing the the documentary on Don the Beachcomber Mm -hmm. and we wanted to do something interesting to where uh, we we used anise instead of Pernod Mm -hmm. we used anise in, in the beer and we just wanted to be different and hopefully be the first Beer that had a star anise in it, mm-hmm. you know. So, but that that was the recipe that we used was the thirty seven recipe. Awesome, yeah, yeah. Because that vermouth Pernod bitter balm, like that, just doesn't work. You yeah, know? there's nothing in that drink. There's no sweetener. There's no. <laughs> yeah. There's no citrus. There's nothing. Yeah, right. So I used to say it's like drinking an ashtray. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Wow, wow. Yeah. But can you imagine if Don? And his bartenders had the spirits and ingredients that we have today, Mm -hmm. what kind of cocktails they would have come up with, because a lot of his drinks were great. Mm -hmm. And knowing what they had to work with, it's nothing short of like, you know, a creative miracle, right? Because, I mean, there wasn't much to work with back then. Now we've got... High-end spirits manufacturers, high-end syrups manufacturers, you know, uh, all the liqueurs and all the
1: flavors. Yeah, especially the liqueurs and syrups. Like, you have so many places that are making, like, every infusion you can imagine nowadays. Yeah. So you're getting, like, really weird style syrups that go into things. Yeah. 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 Mm
0: -hmm. Do you have a syrup that you like to work with that is different than what existed back in the day? Hmm. Like a special infusion uh
1: I mean the funny thing is ginger syrup actually is is one that we really do love, <laughs> you know
0: ginger syrup is something that I've learned to like really uh in the past maybe a year or two, I've really learned to appreciate it Ooh. yeah, hibiscus syrup is really cool, you yeah, you get like a good syrup. like a good one you know, or you just make your own basically yeah. so um another one that I've actually learned to really appreciate there's a few. One of them is prickly pear. Yeah. uh, Because that's really interesting. I really love Fashionola. Ooh. Yeah. And the Fashionola I'm using today, though, how different is that from the Fashionola that's in all the old books? Yeah. (laughs) You know? What does it taste like? What does it resemble? So it's really kind of a mystery. I believe that it's, it's really kind of a combination of, like, raspberry and pineapple and orange and... You know, it's a very rich, tropical flavor. I have some here if you'd like to sample some. And back in the day, before like this whole cocktail renaissance, people were making it from scratch as best as they could. So I was making it using 50% Hawaiian Punch Concentrate. Back when you could buy Hawaiian Punch Concentrate, you just added water to it. Mm Yeah, uh, 50% of that and 50% of Smucker's Red. Uh, it's called Smucker's Ruby Red. Oh, yeah. And it's, a, it's a raspberry syrup. <laughs> so 50-50 of those. And um, it actually comes close to the Jonathan English flavor of Fashionola. Oh. But we have people making it now. Mm-hmm. And their versions are a little bit different. But in their defense... You know, none of us were around in the fifties. We don't know what it tasted like. Right. So, um, I think we're all just kind of guessing, just like the original Mai Tai and, and the original, all the original cocktails. Right. Okay. We're all, we're just kind of guessing because we didn't sit at the bar and drink those with the way they were supposed to be made. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's super interesting to me. Like
1: I, I sometimes sort of ponder about the idea of. You know, I'm I'm certain that the cocktails that were being made in the 1560s 60s have to be different from the way they were today. But I also sometimes wonder about, you know, there's that there's the dead zone, the dark ages, so to speak, yeah. of complex cocktails. 70s, that, 80s, and yeah, 90s. Yeah, started at the beginning of the 70s and all the way until the mid-90s, so yeah. to speak. And um, sort of like the reason why Bone Berry went out and tried to resurrect mm. all these lost recipes, I often think like, gosh, I wonder if there were – I wonder if there were like, uh, like some rums that well certainly we have things like Ray and Nephew Seventeen that are gone but like if maybe there are other rums that were around back then that died in that, dark ages period, mm-hmm. and were these were these bartenders making their own syrups,
0: at the time like to try like the you know was flanum being made like all yeah. in house and stuff like that. I have some really great stories about some of that stuff too. So like n- number one, when. Tony Ramos was still trying to make drinks. And Tony Ramos was one of the Don the Beachcomber bartenders. You know, he had the secret recipe, uh, the secret syrup recipes memorized. Mm. And, you know, in the 90s, I remember sitting at the bar with Jeff Berry and Jeff saying, you know, Tony Ramos is working at a Mexican restaurant downtown. What? We can go down there and, and order these what? old Don the Beachcomber cocktails, and he'll make them for us. Oh my god! And I was like, "Are you serious?" And he's like, "He's like, yeah." He's like, "We can just go." I'm like, "Well, do you want to go now?" <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, you go down there, right? And you order some of these these uh, old Don the Beachcomber cocktails, and Tony was. Tony Ramos was making the syrups he was mixing them out of the trunk of his car and then he was bringing them into the bar and you know this bar the name of the bar was bar slash restaurant was Ciudad they sold like 200 margaritas a day and they just had them making these cheap margaritas they had no idea that they had this Don the Beachcomber mixologist behind the bar that could that could really make them some money and make these great tropicals right oh my gosh Um, so there was there was that kind of stuff right where like those, that lost art was dying right Ooh. but then there's this other thing too that I think about that so Jeff had these recipes in the grog log right and kudos to him for going through all the trouble and in interviewing family members of bartenders that have passed going through their drawers and all that kind of stuff and these family members were pulling out like old black books or you know notes or things from these old bartenders and 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 Jeff was able to compile a lot of these things and also use educated guesses and, you know, do his own research and think like, okay, let me fill in the gaps for this. It was probably this based on this, this, and this. Right. So kudos to him for all that. But I also have like Greg Mansuelo from the Tiki T. Yeah. His uncle owned the Outrigger. Oh, my God. Pasadena. Oh,
1: my goodness. And
0: Greg has his uncle's black book. Oh. And so we looked at some of those recipes, we took some of those recipes, and we opened up the grog log, and some of the recipes don't match. Ooh. So Ooh. we wonder now, mm-hmm. um, which is the right recipe? Yeah, I'm not saying that Jeff's recipe is wrong, yeah. but what if the recipe that he got from that bartender, maybe that bartender, like, maybe the bartender made made it his own way, and right. so he adjusted the recipe? Or maybe the that bartender, like... Shortened certain things to make make it faster for him to make the drink. Right. Yeah. You know, or maybe it was Greg's uncle. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know, right? Because neither of us were there, right? Yeah. So there's that kind of interesting thing happening too, oh my gosh, right? Yeah. And that's just those two bartenders. What if we found another black book and then yeah. we compared those recipes? <laughs> How similar or dissimilar would those be?
1: Yep. Right. Yeah, I some I mean I sometimes think about like how, and to go just to go back to the Mai Tai and how uh, the Mai Tai originally was made with a single rum, you know, the the 17, the seventeen, and then eventually the fifteen. Yeah, and then Vic had to think on his feet when it was like, well, it's all out, and then he's like, well, whatever, I'll I'll use th- this amount of dark Jamaican against this right. much of aged Martinique. Right. to replicate that but what if you found an old recipe book that just said this much of dark Jamaican and right. then how would that you know like the the Martinique aspect would get completely dropped out of that right. had that happened so you get these weird sort of shorthand things that are written down that result in these yeah. derivations yeah. accidental derivations yeah.
0: yeah yeah it's it's some food for thought Ooh. you know it's it's really interesting it's one of those like same world different dimension right like if that that's like another branch right so i don't know it's i find it rather fascinating um so we're at there we're at 33 minutes right now we're going to take a short break and we're going to come back after a couple of words from our sponsors All right, we are back. And what was that topic we were discussing earlier before we got started? Yeah, we were talking a little bit about just the
1: how there was, you know, there's an interesting set of rums back in the mid-century that then sort of evaporated yeah. in the dark ages and then um, thanks to a couple of distributors in, or a couple of distillers in particular, especially in the 2000s and up. Now we have access to just like a whole new range, and um, it's cool. Like I, I noticed that in recent times, you've actually had some of these people on your on your yeah, show. Yeah, I my honestly, my mind was blown when you had Ed Hamilton on the show, and so I was, was like, mine. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Ed, I'm like the Ed Hamilton, really. I I swear, I've actually listened to that episode multiple times because oh, there's, interesting. There's so much info in there. And one of the things that I just couldn't wrap my head around or or what I should say is like, I just didn't know was that uh it's like he had you know he had his whole journey of traveling around on his yeah, sailboat, so he yeah. claims and uh be basically becoming friends with all these different distilleries mm-hmm. uh like in the in the Caribbean, and he whatnot. just became
0: friends with them because he's a rum enthusiast, yeah, so he would sail his boat around the Caribbean and just drink rum,
1: yeah. Right. And then eventually, right, he started importing them in through Florida. Is
0: that correct? I'm not sure if it's Florida. I assume it is because Mm. it's coming from the Caribbean. Yeah. But um, he's not importing them in the sense of like, well, do you know about the three-point system? Mm. So we have this like three-point system or three-step system or whatever you call it. And... It's a rule here in the United States and it stems from when prohibition was lifted. So the rule is that spirits can't can't be distributed without touching three points. Hmm. Um the three points being the spirits manufacturer, the distributor and then the end customer which would be the bar, right? So you can't buy your spirits directly from the spirits manufacturer Mm. you have to buy from a distributor Mm. so i assume ed is doing that right what ed's doing is he's going and getting the rum made in the caribbean and then when it comes here to the united states it's being sold through a distributor Mm. that's my assumption because that's the legal way to do it right you can't buy it directly from ed right but and i don't even know if he has reps do you know if he has brand reps i don't know yeah or if the the spirits sell themselves. Right. So right? even
2: though he's the maker, he still has to have a middleman bringing the rum He still has the to have a middleman. Yeah, the that's,
0: that's the law. That's yeah. so crazy. Yeah. So as a matter of fact, some of the bars that we frequent here, one of the owners told me, you know, I could buy a lot of the stuff that we use in our cocktails for less at Costco. But if I did that, I'd be breaking the law. I have to buy it from a distributor. And so they don't. Yeah. They don't, they don't, uh, you know, it's, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, right? Because there stuff happens under the table all the time. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's just how you're supposed so, to go. Yeah, do legally it. you're supposed to go. Legally through you're the, supposed the three to go through, through a distributor. So you have Southern, which is one of them. Mm-hmm. Young's was bought out by D C, which is Republic National Distributing. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, it's interesting because I've been to the R&DC warehouse before. Mm. And that's where bars go. I, I'll see bars show up there, like their bar managers will show up with a cart. And they'll be filling it up with everything that they need. And that, that's how they're stocking their bars. Or you can, okay. you can order it through either them or through Southern and just have it delivered. But you'll see these trucks driving around. They'll park at a bar and they'll... They'll unload a bunch of, of, of bottles yeah. because they're just having it delivered. You yeah. Know? So yeah. But then yeah, so
1: um so because of someone like uh like Ed Hamilton, now we have all these unique rums that uh it's it's like in the night if you go back to the nineties, like in your memory and think of going to tiki bars so to speak. Yeah. It's a lot of Bacardi.
0: Yeah. A lot of Bacardi. Yeah. Like yeah. What
2: would you see behind the bar then compared to now? <laughs>
0: It's crazy because and I'm guilty of this too. In the nineties mm. when I would go to the bars, this is before I knew anything about crafted cocktails, but in mm. my defense, there was no subculture for crafted yeah, cocktails. Absolutely. So when I was in my twenties and I was going out and getting drunk, I didn't care what I was drinking. You mm. know, like it was just really the 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 price point. Which I, I think like that's why things were devolved because bars were just trying to make as much money as they could. So they were using cheaper ingredients and then yeah. they all competed with each other. So then they'd all like use cheaper, 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 cheaper until yeah. like, you know, that's where we were. Yeah, But it, it really was the dark ages. Absolutely. Right?
1: I feel like last time I was here, we chatted a bit about how, yeah, it was like a, it was almost like a counterculture thing where like once the seventies hit, it's like all these kids that were now becoming of drinking age in the 70s were sort of like counterculture to their parents who yeah. were drinking these yeah. like you know frankly comparatively complex cocktails yeah. born yeah. out of the living room cocktail lounge yeah. culture that was in the mid century.
0: I th- I think there was a lot of that happening. I think it wasn't just that. I think there was there's the counterculture thing happening, but I think that there was also Profit margins getting squeezed, Mm -hmm. right? So we went through this period of, and I remember as a kid hearing the word inflation a lot Mm -hmm. in the 70s. -hmm. And so maybe these bars were just doing what they needed to do to keep their doors open, right? So all those elaborate ingredients and that elaborate procedure to make that drink went out the window because it was just too costly. So uh, again, this is just a theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have all these weird theories about that time because... This fashionola, mm-hmm. which we talked about earlier, it disappeared around that time, around the 70s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But then we started seeing grenadine, right? right? Yeah. And I don't think grenadine was really part of the early cocktails. I could be wrong about that. I'm not mm. a cocktail historian. But it, based on the timing, it makes me wonder, and this is one of my theories. If grenadine found its prolificness in the 70s because fashionola kind of disappeared, and so grenadine being the same color and it's a syrup, I'll just use grenadine instead. Yeah. And then you start seeing grenadine in cocktails, right? Yep. Because fashionola was no longer around. Again, it's a theory. Yeah. So. And it's that's to go back to
1: what we talked about uh, in the first half. That's entirely possible that, um, like I know that there's a version of the zombie that was around back then that used grenadine in it. Hmm. But I think that maybe it was really Fashionola. And then it got replaced, <coughs> so to speak, with grenadine in the recipe that was written down. Where I right. was like, oh yeah, you toss a little bit of this stuff
0: in there and maybe, you know, right. Fashionola sort of evaporated off the original. Well, and even back then, right? So you have people that aren't really versed in the craft cocktail thing, it's really just a, a a bar patron that if the drink looks right, if it's if you're ordering a Purple Rain or you're ordering a Blue Hawaiian, it's got to be blue or it's got to be purple, right? Mm-hmm. And if you order a drink that normally had red Fashionola in it and it's no longer red, they're going to say like, hey, this drink isn't even red, you know? Right. But Grenadine's red, so you can kind of fake it, right? Yeah. Grenadine's red, it's sweet. Yep. You can kind of fake it, you know? Yeah. I mean, Most people aren't going to send it back. Yeah. You know? Even
2: yeah. a few years ago, I would think grenadine and maraschino cherry syrup
0: yeah,
2: were roughly the same. the same thing because sometimes mm-hmm. one would get made cheaper. Maraschino is not the same as like the maraschino flavor that you would get in a Luxardo right. or something. But I would be like, oh, it's the same. It must be. It's the name is the same. The color's the same. They're probably the Close same enough. syrup. Yeah, oh, yeah. They'll probably taste
0: the same. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Oh, the average person's not going to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? So, and if their goal is like me, just trying to get a little buzz, you know, just trying yeah. to let loose a little bit, you know, it'll still do the job, right?
1: Absolutely. <laughs> so, you were t- in the, I think that you had brought up at one point in the, in that three points distribution, how like because of that, when, weren't like small, like it makes it harder for smaller uh, distilleries, right? In order to,
0: uh, well, to make money. I would think so because you have a distributor that wants to make as much money as they can. Mm-hmm. So if you're a small guy that's only producing, and I, we're just gonna we're just gonna use these numbers for examples. If you're a small guy that's only producing a thousand bottles a year, versus a big brand that's producing a million bottles a year, the distributor is going to want to do business with that. If they're only marking up that bottle that. Those bottles by a dollar, they're making a million dollars a year. They have to market your bo- mark up your bottle, what, ten times, a thousand times, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. right, to make the same kind of money. They'd have to mark it up a thousand times, yeah, right, to yeah. make the same kind of money. Yeah. So a lot of these distributors, you know, that they they don't care if you need distributorship and you're a small brand. A lot of them are like, "Yeah, you're too small." You know, like that's why a lot of these small guys don't have distributors. You know, and they're they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we get our product out there? They're having trouble getting distributorship. Yeah. And I know that some brands, their workaround is they just create their own distribution company, Ooh. right? Uh, yeah. Just like the car manufacturers. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Getting around certain laws, right? Like Toyota, for example, they're only allowed to sell a certain number of units in the United States because there's a uh, there's some kind of like law I don't know if you, what you call it's this. like an import limit law it's an import limit right mm-hmm. so that they can all they, they can't sell more than X amount of units so it doesn't affect the the United States um, market for GM yeah mm-hmm. so they might say and I don't know what the number is they might say you're only allowed to sell a million cars per year you know as Toyota so then Toyota starts a new brand, Lexus. Yeah. And Nissan started <laughs> Infiniti, Yeah. And Honda started Acura. They all did that so that they could sell more cars. Yeah. Right. So it's a way to work. Yeah. Around. So they double effectively. They double how much they could sell, it's like and they're workaround. within the law, because yeah. they're doing those as different brands. It's a completely different brand. Hmm. Yeah.
2: That's weird. Hey, that's yeah. crazy.
1: It's funny. That's it. Um, this isn't exactly uh, you know spirits related, but right. the the identical thing happened in the '80s with uh, when Nintendo, the, the yeah. game company, yeah. they had basically had like a massive, massive market share dominance, and all of these third party uh, game makers, like uh, developers, they wanted to sell on Nintendo's platform, like on the NES, yeah, but. They had a very similar law that was like, well, we're only going to take X amount of percent. Of, you could, oh, you could only sell three games a year. I think on the Nintendo, uh, if you were a third-party developer, that was okay. it. They limited you to that, and so uh, I know for a fact, like Konami, for example, which is oh, one yeah, of the I biggest remember that game name, companies. Konami, yeah. Yeah. So Konami is the big one, and they were making games like Contra and stuff like that, and uh, but then they were developing more than three games a year. So they created a company named Ultra. Right. That was the, it's the right. same company with the exact same developers and musicians and everything. Right. Right. And I remember he, figuring that out, like in the last 10 to 15 years I learned this because I was like, it's funny that these Ultra games look and feel a lot like the right. Konami right. games. <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, they're the same company. The oh. same company. That's how I learned about that, that limit like a third-party limit right. thing. So it's like the exact and same. And these
0: laws, too, are to to protect the consumers from a monopoly forming, right? Mm-hmm. Because if there's a specific brand that monopolizes the market, they can basically charge you whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? So because they're a monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. But by doing it this way, it doesn't look like it's a monopoly. Yeah. It doesn't matter, though, because if they can, they can... Still keep the prices low because they're collecting money on all of them. They own all of it, yep. so it doesn't yeah. matter. Like you know, it's it's kind of the same thing with um, like today, like with a lot of the software that we use, hmm. a lot of the apps we use. I think PayPal owns Venmo. Did you know that? Hmm. Does it? Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. So okay. PayPal owns Venmo, uh. and um, what are all the brands like, like that? They're all part of the same company, right? Mm. Like Facebook, <laughs> oh, Instagram, yeah. Oh, yeah. Facebook, oh. WhatsApp, they're all the same company. Yeah. This large umbrella company.
1: Yeah, they all got purchased. Right? Yeah. But
0: if they consolidated them all, then it kind of forms a monopoly, doesn't yeah, it? It does. So, mm-hmm. But by yeah. keeping them separate, they can they can still own everything <laughs> and not break that law. Right. Yeah. It's 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 creative right yeah. it's crazy, but it's there's creative ways that people get around it, yeah, you know, yeah. dangerously close to an antitrust <laughs> yeah. dangerously yeah, 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 you know we go back and forth, we'll see this stuff happen, and then laws will come out, and then you know people will find a creative way around it, right, mm-hmm. and you know this is kind of a bad example it's it's not like their laws or anything, but you know, we used to all have cable TV. Mm-hmm. You pay one price, and you get three hundred some odd channels. And then people started breaking those up and saying, like, oh, "I don't want to pay that." You know, and I'm just going to pay twenty bucks for Netflix, and I'm just going to get Netflix. Yeah. And Then you get you, you get Netflix, you get Hulu, you get Disney Plus, you get Paramount, you get you know you start adding all these right. Yeah. And then you and then now you're paying like all these different services. It's almost starting to be like. Well, what, can I just pay one price and get all the channels? <laughs> you know, Which is where we started, right? We mm-hmm. paid one price and we got like three and something channels. Yeah. And, and now it's n- like, we don't want to do that. It's cheaper if we go this way. But then like it all it adds up to almost being the same thing.
1: I mean, the funny thing is, is it, or the irony of that is now uh, Disney has actually purchased a large majority of all those st- individual streaming services so now it's it's oh, turning yeah. back into that again where <laughs> yeah if you buy a disney plus and get like a little bit of an extra bundle you get hulu espn, ESPN
0: uh and hbo the, too right because i oh, get that, hbo through hulu oh, oh really what? yeah oh weird Whoa. yeah it's oh, bundled crazy. huh crazy yeah it's interesting there must be some like overlap in some of these maybe through
2: yeah. providers th- as well
0: yeah i thought you were going to tell me um that disney purchased all these different intellectual properties mm. because they own star wars and, oh, yeah and mm. marvel and yeah. mm-hmm. right those were all separate too yep. right so now when you go to the box office and you spend 20 bucks on a movie it all goes to disney it doesn't matter yeah so like is there a monopoly happening almost Disney's on the verge of potential (laughs) antitrust so I don't know
2: same story just throughout same story yeah different
0: categories it's just like the phone companies and that's the the world we live in now yeah the phone companies it was was just like before there was a massive antitrust problem in the mid 90s with uh,
1: AT&T bought everything up and like Sprint And all that stuff, and like singular, and all that started to consolidate. yeah. The government actually, that was antitrust. They had to step in and break those ones up. Yeah, yeah. So, that was
0: crazy. Yeah. (laughs) So, interesting, interesting stuff. What will be interesting to see is, you know, what happens in the next, shoot, even as recent as five years. Mm -hmm. Because, and even just for technology. So, I lived in this era where i saw the rise you guys did too we saw the rise of this wireless world that mm-hmm. we live in live in now right mm-hmm. i re- i mean you know as a child like everything was analog we used film on our cameras and and i used cassette tape to put music on and and then like we would go from that to cds and then cds to digital and then digital to streaming like you know, no one carries iPods anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Everything's mm-hmm. all streaming, and then as technology gets more and more advanced, right, we go from having a thousand records in on shelves in the in the living room to having ten thousand records in our back pocket, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Th- through streaming services, right. I mean, like, who would have ever thought back in the '90s when we we're talking about the dark ages of drinking all this, you know, crap stuff? Like, mm-hmm. internet wasn't part of our lives yet. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. who would have thought that years later? It would be like a utility, like you can't live without it. Yeah. You know, you can't live without Dependent electricity, you can't it. live without water, you can't live without internet. You yeah. can't live without it, right? You can't be unplugged. What's that new technology gonna be in the future? Yeah. yeah. You know? Yeah. So that that always is freaking to me. And I remember the first time that I saw an iPhone that was touchpad. So I remember oh, so let's say this. I remember my iPod mm-hmm. which had the click wheel. Yeah, yeah, And then they were showing how the new iPod was going to be, you know, here's the new iPod and it was a screen and I thought like, well how are they going to do that? Like how do you select your music and how do you, you know, and it didn't even occur to me that it would be touch screen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then the touch screen and the swipe and all that stuff and mm-hmm. I thought, "Wow." And then they started doing like the do you, do you have do you have VR glasses? Uh no no not Wait. yet not. yeah no so my son got VR glasses and you know you put your phone in it and he was oh, like yeah. oh yeah he's like he's like check this out dad and he's you know we would we would play a game and the zombies and stuff would come out right and it scared me like mm-hmm. they were just cartoons mm-hmm. but the noise and stuff it would freak mm-hmm. me out so I'd pull the glasses off and I'd be like <laughs> I don't want to play this game anymore I'm done and he'd be like why like, and i'm like it's too scary and he's like dad it's fake <laughs> it, it was right but it freaked me out and and now we have this thing where you know this new virtual world is coming mm-hmm. right so we already saw that they did this concert with tupac right mm-hmm. where they brought oh, tupac yeah. yeah as a hologram yeah well the technology is supposed to be where like now we could just put the the vr on and we'll be in this world and we won't even know that it's fake anymore right Mm -hmm. and like the deep fake technology is already Mm -hmm. just watching that is already freaky right it's like so good that it's scary but put that in a couple that in a vr world oh yeah that's gonna be freaky
2: Could be freaky in a good way. You could swim through finding Nemo very peacefully in the waves.
0: Could be. I could see though something happening for for us nerds, us tiki and cocktail Ooh. nerds. We could put ourselves back in the original Don the Beach Comer yeah. bar. <laughs> could could do a whole walk fun. through. Yeah, yeah, walk through it. Or we yeah. could do the same thing with like the Kahiki or Trader Vic's. Yeah. You know. The Outrigger. All these places that are retired, you know. Yeah, we could have VR animators actually like render Mm -hmm. Trader Vic again. Yeah, and have them cuss us out, (laughs) (laughs) right? And, And it would look real. Yeah. Right, because if it's a VR character and and it looks real, we could we could actually create all those false worlds, all the all the bars and restaurants that we want a time machine for. Yeah. That would be, be super that would be so fun. That would that be crazy? a little neat just yeah.
2: to recreate the bar and have something where you could just do a look around and be like, "So that's how. That's what it would look yeah. like." Yeah. Yeah. Or close yeah. to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, then, yeah, you you would get the look and feel.
2: Almost like a recreation of a cocktail. Trying to recreate the Mai Tai. Right.
0: Yeah. Oh man, that'd right. be fun. So, I have a question for you, mm-hmm. and um, we'll wrap on this question. There. Are articles that are out there now that are showing like you know these days cocktails, especially a crafted quality cocktail, is not cheap right so mm-hmm. you have cocktails that are twenty five dollars now right mm-hmm. and I'm sure you're aware of this you've you've probably been to like a fine restaurant or like an an upscale craft cocktail bar, and the cheapest drink on the menu is eighteen dollars so, oh yeah, yeah absolutely, and so now you're seeing like you know. 20, 22 24 25 26 dollars for one cocktail for mm-hmm. one so it's getting really expensive to drink these cocktails right mm-hmm. and there's a number of things at play right maybe it's the ingredients maybe it's the the cost of the the real estate that the the bar or restaurant is in maybe it's inflation maybe it's all of the above maybe it all contributes to the 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 rise of the cost of these cocktails mm-hmm what do you think the future is? Do you think we keep climbing this craft cocktail ladder or do you think things regress back to we where we started using cheaper ingredients because people just don't want to pay that kind of money and a restaurant has to stay profitable? I mean, Does, in other words, do we go back to the dark ages? <laughs> to the dark ages, <laughs> right? I
1: mean, my it's hard to predict like if the... Complex cocktail world will will go through another phase of, you know, get, becoming like way out of style.
0: Yeah.
1: My first instinct reaction to that question is that I feel like, just like in the restaurant world, I feel like there will always be a, a multi-bracketed sure. scenario where, um, you know, you you'll have people because it's. That also is a direct response to whoever the clientele is, mm-hmm. and so like as long as there's a demand for people who are seeking that experience, like sure, there there may just be less of them, but maybe it'll become more of a boutique thing where it's like, okay, well there's one bar in this one place that you if you're looking for that thirty dollar you know ridiculous ingredients you know uh, experience, you can go there, but then. Yeah, like as far as like a regular bar
0: goes or like a regular cocktail bar goes, um, it might get a little more pulled back. I think I agree with you in the sense that that finely crafted cocktail with the top shelf ingredients will never go away. There will always be somebody that will pay the price for that. But there's a breaking point somewhere for the average person, like what is that, right? it's already there for me. I, I'm not going to pay twenty five dollars for a cocktail, mm-hmm. you know. But what does that mean? Does that mean that like I have to buy an inferior cocktail now? Mm. You know, if right. I want to buy something that's less than twenty dollars, right? Right. Yeah. So am I going to get something that's made with bottled, you know, bottled ju- lime juice and bottled grenadine and bottled, you know? um Things that aren't freshly made anymore because that's no longer the cocktail I can afford. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the breaking point going to be for the average person? It's already there for me. But, you know, this is the direction the bars are going. People are paying it so far, right? Mm -hmm. But when I was old enough to start drinking, and I'm going to age myself by saying this. Mm -hmm. So our listeners know that I'm in my 50s. So I started drinking. I turned 21 in 1989. Mm -hmm. And when I'd go to the bars back then in the early 90s, a $3 cocktail was not unusual. Three to four bucks, right, for a cocktail. Happy hour, you know, you could get cocktails, you could get well cocktails for $2. As the times changed, and we went later on in the 90s, that well cocktail went up to three, maybe $4. And then the crafted, and I put that in air quotes because we're still in the 90s, the better drink with the better ingredients were somewhere around five, six, maybe seven dollars. I remember seven dollars even being kind of high. Never in my mind did I ever expect to spend twenty dollars on a drink, right? But this is where we are, right? Mm-hmm. And the people that are out there today, if this is the norm for them, you know, what's the the tipping point or the breaking point, right? Is it thirty dollars a drink, forty dollars a drink? Right, your eyes got really wide. Yeah. <laughs> drink. And our listeners can't hear your eyes getting yeah. really wide. They got really wide. <laughs> but that's, that's you know, that's kind of super crazy to me, Yeah. right? So, oh, yeah. <laughs> but if that's if that's where a crafted cocktail gets to, then if we're trying to keep drinks under $20, so a, a place can stay in business, because maybe you're gonna start losing customers at $30 a drink mm-hmm. or $25 a drink, right? Yeah. So, you have to use the cheaper ingredients, right? Do we start going backwards a little bit? Right? Yeah. So, it's one of those questions like, you know, what is the future of craft cocktails or what is the future of that subculture? Yeah. Right? Do we regress a little bit? Mm-hmm. You know, I
1: do worry about it sometimes in the sense, just because I'm someone who loves craft cocktails. But I think of it, I, it's like it's so insanely popular right now mm-hmm. that it feels like it can't get bigger. Yeah. And uh, like I remember when a couple tiki bars started showing up, like new ones started showing up, circa 2009, 2010. And I I remember at that moment, like that's over 10 years ago now.
0: Yeah.
1: Being like, oh man, like I feel so lucky that I'm going to bars at this moment because after this, they're all gonna go. They're away. all gonna go away. Yeah. 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 And now it's like, boom, it's only gotten bigger.
0: Yeah. And yeah. so
1: even more, I'm like, Ooh, yeah. like we're super gonna break that bubble.
0: Well, there's there's the also the conundrum of you know, and this is what sucks is, so you have a bar that they started charging twelve dollars for a drink when everybody else was charging ten, mm-hmm. but this bar was using better ingredients, mm-hmm. so their drinks were in the twelve to fifteen dollar range, but then these other bars see that they can charge their oh they're charging twelve to fifteen dollars for these their drinks. Yeah. We should up our prices. So they do that because they know the market can bear it, not because their ingredients are better. Yeah. So if you go to a dive bar, right, <laughs> there are dive bars that are selling you cocktails for twelve bucks and everything comes out of a screw gun. Yeah. You know? And um how is that a twelve dollar drink, yeah. right? Or a fifteen dollar drink for that matter, right? So there's that conundrum too, right? Like if everybody's gonna keep raising to, to stay competitive and get their quote unquote piece of the pie Yeah, you know where is that tipping point you know yeah so uh, yeah, yeah. We'll see. and then does it get to a point where a craft cocktail only exists in a five star restaurant yeah because that's the only kind of customer that is willing to pay for it
1: yeah you know start scaling it back yeah Yeah. Yeah.
0: so what happens so I don't know just again food for thought yeah thought it'd be something that would be interesting to close the episode with and people can think about that we'll look back on this episode you know, right. five ten years from right, now, right. see where we're at. Remember when we talked about how twenty five dollars <laughs> cocktail sounded so expensive? Yeah. Oh
1: no. <laughs> Give me an old fashioned, fifty dollars, right.
0: please. Oh no. Uh, so, what a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again for coming out. Thank you. And being here inside the desert oasis room, I appreciate both of you making the trip. Ooh. I know I don't exactly live around the corner. <laughs> And so for our listeners out there, if you want to see what our friends here are doing, please check out their YouTube channel. That is youtube.com slash cocktail fridays. Mm-hmm. And do you want to throw out your social medias if you want to have people check those out as well? If you want to follow us on Instagram, we're just at uh,
1: it's, it's at Badger Phone, which is Badger like the animal and F O N E
0: like Badger Phone. <laughs> like, yeah. I love it. I like love an oldie timey telephone <laughs> way of saying it. Yeah. I love it. At Badger Phone. And I will put all those links in the description as well. And if you'd like to follow our adventures, we have a YouTube channel as well youtube.com slash polynesian pop if you want to help support the channel we have a patreon patreon.com slash polynesian pop and if you're listening to this podcast you already know that you can find this podcast on all social media or all of our media channels iHeartRadio, radio spotify apple music google play oh, all that kind of stuff but check out DesertOasisRoom.com too you can get it there as well as check out our merch which also helps support the show And as always, I appreciate you listening to this episode. So until the next time, cheers and aloha, everyone.